I was thinking back to my high school days. Took a number of good classes in high school, and of course, having a science teacher here, uh, I took a chemistry class when I was in high school, and I learned some good things. I was kind of trying to remember some of the things that I learned, but the fun part for me of chemistry was doing the science experiments. And of course, uh, I love when Mrs. Reeve tells a children's story because there's something visual or something that you can demonstrate, um, often a science experiment. Chemistry class, I learned different things. Um, I learned when doing your lab demonstration, timing is very important. We did our presentation correctly, but we messed the timing up, and so there was a big ball of fire and smoke, and then the fire alarm went off, and the whole school evacuated. Me and my partner. Uh, we learned the concept. We just didn't get the lid on this experiment quite fast enough. And thus, we sat there a little nervous outside, but kind of chuckling to ourselves because we knew we had caused all this. One of the less um, disruptive experiments from chemistry was when we learned about acids and alkalines and, and how to tell the difference using litmus paper. Uh, the old litmus test. Probably all of us, if you went to high school uh, or maybe even in earlier science classes, you did some experiments with those little colored pieces of paper dropping on uh, an unknown liquid to you and figuring out, oh, this changed the color from blue to red. It must be um, an acid. I'm trying, I realized, wait, I don't remember the specifics of which color went with which, and <laughs> so I got to go back to high school. Mr. Redberg, if you're watching, I did learn things in your class. But the litmus test, it helps you know what something is or what something isn't. Uh, and today in politics, there, the phrase a litmus test or litmus question has been used because sometimes people will ask a politician or a potential candidate a question and based on how they feel about an issue, what the person says in response will tell them immediately if they can support or if they can't support that particular candidate. A litmus test, it helps you know the character, uh, the substance of the thing that you're testing. Today, we're talking about the sheep and the goats. This last parable, the very last parable, although some say it's not quite a parable, uh, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. But I want to start with a caveat, uh, a little bit of a disclaimer, because some people read this and they interpret it as a works-based salvation formula. If I do certain things for those in need, I will be saved. But we know this is not the case. We are saved only by the grace and the blood of Jesus. The thing about a litmus test is it doesn't change the substance. It just reveals the substance. And so as we look at this last day litmus test, love in action, we'll find that it, it doesn't... It's not the actions that save us, it's 
the Jesus who's been working in our heart to lead us to do those things that save us. It's, it's like that with spiritual fruit. The fruit doesn't make the tree. The tree makes the fruit. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that people would know that we are his disciples if we love one another. But love leads to practical action. Love isn't just a feeling that you have. Love leads to action. So let's dive into it. Matthew chapter 25, last day litmus test. Matthew 25 and verse 31. The Bible there says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And I want to pause for a moment because that phrase, Son of Man, was Jesus's, I don't need to say Jesus's, I can just say Jesus' favorite title for himself. Favorite title. He used it almost 70 times in reference to himself. And it's an Old Testament phrase. You can see it a lot in the book of Ezekiel. You can see it sometimes in the book of Psalms. But perhaps the most significant as it relates to Jesus is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This heavenly throne room scene when one like the Son of Man approaches uh, the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. There's a scene of judgment. And then afterwards, the Son of Man receives a kingdom, power, and great glory. So Jesus calls himself, again, the Son of Man. When I come back, in other words, when I come back in glory. How much glory does Jesus have? So much glory that we can't handle it without divine intervention. Without divine sunscreen, we'll be burned by the glory of Jesus. And that's perhaps why in the last days when Jesus comes back, for those who are looking forward to him, we look up with, with joy as we see him and his presence and glory. But for those who are not prepared, Revelation 6 says they're calling for the, the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the Lamb. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he wasn't glorious on the earth. Started as a little baby, very humble beginnings, lived a humble life, died a very shameful death. There was nothing glorious externally about the life of Jesus uh, as he lived on this earth. But when he comes back, it's glory time. It says, he will come back with all the holy angels with him. How many angels are there? We don't know exactly, but there are thousands and tens, ten thousands and thousands upon thousands of angels. And he will sit upon the throne. The throne of his glory. A unique phrase that's used, I think, only one other place. His glorious throne. He's going to sit down on his glorious throne. When did Jesus... Get to sit on the throne. Well, he, he, he started sitting on the throne from, exist, from eternity, having um, been with the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity, sitting on their heavenly throne. But then he left his throne to come down to this world. Uh, but after his death and resurrection, and, and as he ascended back to heaven, the Bible describes him again sitting down on his throne. And then, yet again, the Bible says, after this, uh, this investigative judgment 
or as has been described to me, and I like it, the affirmative judgment. Because for those of us who've given our life, entrusted our life to Jesus, judgment, this, this judgment is really an affirmation of our decision, an affirmation of all the good things that Jesus has done on our behalf, credited to our account. And so when this affirmative judgment is over, Jesus comes back. And as 2 Peter 3 tells us, he's been waiting, not because he's slow, but because he's trying to save more people. He's waiting to save more people. And then the Bible tells us he sits down on his throne. And then at the very end, after the thousand years are over, there's another throne scene. So Christ comes in all of his glory as the Son of Man, sits on his throne, verse 32, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. We can think back to other parables, other other metaphors that Jesus gave about him as the great shepherd. One of the things that I learned about sheep and goats this week is that uh, sheep having the, the longer wool uh, keeps them warmer. Uh, goats with their hair doesn't tend to keep them quite as warm, and so the goats tend to herd up at night in cooler regions. Uh, and so sometimes uh, the, the shepherd would let the sheep and the goats graze together, and at the evening time he would separate the two. Goats would come together. Or at other times, <clears throat> those in that part of the world would funnel their sheep and goats through a narrow space that only one animal could fit through at a time. And the shepherd would sit up on top of the fence and he had a little gate. And if a goat would come, he would move the gate one way, he would move the goat that way. When a sheep would come, he would move the gate this way, move the sheep that way. Kind of like at, at Winco or at some of those stores where they can... Uh, send the groceries one way or the other way. And, uh, and so this image was a, was a common one for the people of his day, a shepherd dividing the sheep from the goats. And of course, the shepherd loved both the sheep and the goats. But in this parable, in this metaphor, this kingdom imagery, the sheep are the ones who will be saved and the goats are the ones who will be lost. So clearly, when when Jesus returns to this world, it's clear that he knows who he's going to take with him and who are not safe to save. So so before he returns, there has already been a decision made. And coming back to this affirmative judgment thing, it makes sense that there has already been a process in heaven, because that's where Jesus is before he comes back, a process that has happened in heaven whereby the eternal destinies have been uh, recognized based on the decisions of us here on earth. Uh, Of course, God could keep this process internal. He could just know in his mind, they're saved, they're lost. But God, because he doesn't have closed books, he doesn't have redactions in the heavenly archives, he doesn't have a classified documentation opens it up for the universe to see who's safe to save and who rejected the offer of mercy. 
And it's seen. Those who've entrusted their life to Jesus, they're affirmed. In the affirmative judgment, they're safe to save. They are a part of the sheep. And not only is it affirming for us, I think it's also affirming for God, whose judgment process gets reviewed by the rest of the onlooking universe. So the Bible says, when the Son of Man comes back, in his glory, with all the angels, he sits on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. There's only two sides in that last day. You can't ride the fence when the Lord comes back. You're either with him or you're not with him. Notice there's a left and a right. Is God prejudiced against the left side? Is he partial only to the right? Of course, God loves the left-handers in this world. Amen? I know some very important and special left-handed people in this world. Uh, this is what we call accommodative language. Um, God, whose ways are higher than our ways and thoughts are higher than our thoughts, had to communicate uh, ideas to us and chose to do it through humans who lived in a time and lived in a culture. And in the culture of the day, the right hand was the place of honor. The left side, which I guess would be this side, but you get the idea. You can accommodate for my own uh, language here. The left side, we'll just call this the left side. The left side was the position of either lesser honor or dishonor. Uh, having traveled in Israel, and if you've been to other countries, you'll know that in some cultures, the left hand is the hand that you may have to use when you go to the bathroom. Sanitation-wise, it's not as clean. Um, so there were practical reasons why the left hand may have been associated with um, lesser honor or dishonor. So Jesus separates. There's only two groups, the sheep and the goats, one on the place of honor and the other in the place of dishonor. Notice it says, he will set the sheep. The Greek word there is histemi, which also is the Greek word translated in other places as to stand. So here we have a description of the people, the sheep, who can stand before Jesus in the last days. And it reminds us of a passage, again, in Revelation chapter 6, where the question is asked, the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? It's the same Greek word, histami. Who can stand before Jesus? And in that passage, it's before the Lamb. And so in Matthew 25 and Revelation 6, we almost have kind of a similar ideas, but the Lamb, the the sheep are the ones who can stand before the Lamb. Not because they're standing in their own power, but because they've spent so much time with the Lamb that they've become a sheep. They've become Lamb-like. And so there they are, standing in front of the King. The King being Jesus. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We get an inheritance. Now, if you've ever received an inheritance, how do you get 
an inheritance. Somebody has to die before you can get your inheritance. It took the death of Jesus so that we could someday get our inheritance. So as we look forward with joy, we recognize that it cost Jesus everything to give us this opportunity, this kingdom that has prepared before the foundation of the world. And we've seen in other places that same phrase, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan, should sin enter the universe, that he would give up himself so that we could be saved. The kingdom that was stolen from us through sin, we get back again. We get back uh, to God's plan as he originally planned it. And then the explanation for, for why this happens is given. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous, the sheep, made righteous by the blood of Jesus. The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will assuredly answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. You see, the sheep aren't doing these things so that they can uh, tally up all their good works. They're not doing it saying, hey, that's Jesus, I better do this, otherwise he's going to not like me. They're just doing it because that's who they've become following after the lamb, allowing the lamb shepherd to lead them. And they find out that the good that they did was always ultimately done to Jesus. Notice it says, to the least of these my brethren. This is not saying that those who are poor or in need are lesser than, right? In society's eyes, that may be how secular society views people, but in God's eyes, we are all equal. All equal. But the least of these, those who are lesser in opportunity. And how many of us haven't been in need in our lives? All of us have needed help from time to time. But he says, the least of these are my brethren. And it's interesting, as you look at the phrase, my brothers or my brethren in the book of Matthew, it's either in reference to the literal brothers of Jesus or to the spiritual brothers and sisters of Jesus. Um, multiple verses show that those who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus are the ones who are following after him, the spiritual ones. Not that we shouldn't be doing good things for those who are outside of the church. We absolutely should and need to. But if we can't start by doing good things for those in our own community of faith, uh, we won't be able to effectively do it for those outside of our community of faith either. Remember what Jesus said, John 13, 35? 
people will know that we're his disciples if we have love just to begin with for one another. And so Jesus says, if you've done it to my brothers, done it for those within the community of faith in need, well, then you've done it also unto me. You see, Jesus identifies with his church. What did Jesus say to the Apostle Paul? Well, before he was Apostle Paul, to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? And this leads us to a powerful reality that Jesus identifies with you and me. He identifies with the pain that you're going through, the struggle that you're dealing with right now. Jesus feels it too. Perhaps that's why in Isaiah 53, again, using this sheep imagery, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus identifies with the struggles. And when you feel struggle, he feels it too. When you're overjoyed at what good things God is doing in your life, he feels that great joy also. I want to read you something here from uh, the Adventist Bible Commentary. It says, What consolation that Christ identifies himself with his chosen ones to the extent that whatever concerns them concerns him personally. We can feel no pain or discontentment. We can experience no need but that Christ sympathizes with us. In making the needs of others our responsibility, we reflect the same aspect of divine character. So as Jesus feels our pain when we feel it, as we spend time with him and identify our character with his, we start to feel the same way that he does. And so when his heart is broken over the things going on in our world, our heart becomes broken over the things going on in this world. Two groups in the last days. Those touched by the needs of others and those not touched. Those that remain indifferent. And then we move on. We move on. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed. Into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Lord, if we'd known it was you, we would have we done it. Then he will answer to them a saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting eternal life. Just a quick word there on that word, everlasting. 
uh, in regards to uh, punishment. Notice it says everlasting punishment, not everlasting punishing. The effects of being separated from God, uh, the effects of ultimately losing your entire life, dying the second death, those effects last forever. Um, that punishment lasts forever, but praise God, uh, the conscious living sense of that pain do not last forever. In fact, you can look at Greek manuscripts from around that same time, and they use that word, ionios, uh, that word forever, eternal. They use it uh, in describing the Roman emperors. Uh, Tiberius Caesar, who reigned for 23 years, they said his reign was forever, eternal reign. It just was, he reigned continuously until he stopped reigning, until he died. While we don't want anyone to ever have to experience this second death, we can thank God that our God is a just God and a merciful God. Um, and, and we don't have to experience that second death uh, because eternal, everlasting life is promised to us. So what have we seen today? Well, we've seen that there are really only two groups in the last days those who are lost and those who are saved, the sheep and the goats. And we've also been reminded that, that this isn't salvation by works. This is rather salvation that is working. This is love in action, hearts that have been transformed by the love of Jesus so that they do something. And it may not look exactly like what we see listed here, but this love will move and work in some way. We didn't go into great detail because over the next few weeks we're going to, uh, this is launching a new sermon series on love and action. Um, various people groups trying to figure out how we can be practical Christians in our world, in this community. Um, how can we meet the needs of the disenfranchised, of those who are uh, experiencing economic hardship, uh, those who are uh, a part of oppressed people groups in our area. So we're going to get very practical in the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to give you some homework week by week so that you can put your love into action. But I have a question as we start to wrap it up for today. What do we do if we don't have the love for others that we know we should have? Because today we've seen very clearly we need to have that love. Well, this is a last day litmus test. It's not the only consideration, but man, how we treat others, how we love others, reveals what's inside of our hearts. But what if our heart is lacking that? A few simple suggestions. Number one, ask for it. Just tell God, God, I don't really care about other people, but I, I want to. Please give me a heart for others. And then secondly, just start spending time with a lamb. You may be goat-like now, but he can start to transform you to becoming lamb-like. Spend time with a shepherd who's also our lamb. We referenced Revelation a couple of times today, and I'm reminded of a, one last passage in Revelation, Revelation 14 talks about those who are saved, 
the 144,000, and it says in Revelation 14, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever He goes. It's about loving the Lamb to follow Him wherever He leads. And if you're following the Lamb in this world, in this life right now, He will lead you to people who need you. If you're following Jesus, He's going to go to people who need something. So let Him lead you this week, to people who need you. Let Jesus' love melt your heart and change your heart so that he will give you that compassion to share with others. You know, my dad used to tell me, he said, every good deed that we do in this world will have an everlasting impact, an eternal impact. I mean, sometimes you try to help someone, you might even help them for years, and in the end, they just go back to their poor choices in life, and they never respond. And it can be frustrating sometimes. But my dad was trying to help me realize, no, no, every good thing we do has an eternal difference. Because he said, if you've done it under the least of these, you've done it under Jesus. And if, even if those people are lost, Jesus is going to live forever, and so that good will live on in the heart of Jesus. I want to bring joy to his heart today. I want to let him lead me to people that need me. How about you? Let's pray and ask him right now. Loving Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that we have heaven to look forward to. Right now, there are people in our community, maybe people in our neighborhoods, people at our school, people in our church, people uh, that need some love and compassion, that need some practical acts of love and godliness. Lead us to them this week. Give us the wisdom to know how to help. Give us the love that motivates us. And may your presence uh, just empower us as we follow you throughout our week. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a happy Sabbath. We'll see you next week.